Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Really, what I want to do first is, is pray for us, and then uh, tonight we're jumping in the book, so we'll do it. Uh, but let me pray for us, and then we can just kind of get going. Father God, we are so thankful for your goodness, for your grace. Lord, we're thankful, God, that we could study your word in peace. And God, just be able to know that your church gets to gather together on a night like this. Father, to lean in. Father, to, to see what it is you, you have to say. Uh, Father, we know that you have spoken so many times and you continue to desire to do so. And yet, uh, so often we get so distracted that we don't hear it, your voice. We don't hear your, uh, your truth, your goodness. And Father, we pray that that would begin tonight. God, help us to see, help us to hear. Help us to surrender, to humble ourselves before you, God. Uh, Father, help me to speak uh, in a way that continues to glorify all the things uh, that you, you want us to understand. And Father God, that we would all be transformed as we begin to look at the life of Daniel. Father, we're thankful for your power and the ways in which you moved in his life. And we pray that you would continue to do powerful works in ours. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so a couple things. Um, first off, how many of you guys did your homework? Raise your hand. All right, that's pretty good. That's good, that's good. Um, well, before we jump into kind of talking a little bit about that, um, first, let's just do this. Let's just kind of recap last week. And so, by the way, I need to say this uh, for people who listen on the podcast. I don't know what I did last week, but the mic got unplugged. And so if you listen to the podcast, it just sounds like somebody is like uh, crumpling up a piece of paper for a lot of it. So my bad, uh, but uh, hopefully this one doesn't do that. Anyways, last week, let's kind of recap what we talked about. You guys want what, to, what were the biggest things that we said? These are the important things going into the book of Daniel. This is the context of Daniel. Uh, do you guys remember one, some of those things? Let's, uh, let's just shout those out just when you got them. The covenant, yes. The covenant is a major part, right? That is the entire reason why uh, the, the Israelites are going into exile, is because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. It would be as though a man committed adultery or a woman committed adultery with their spouse. They have, they have really severed this relationship in a way uh, that ultimately God is now kind of, kind of uh, moving out of the picture and allowing the Babylonians to take them into exile. Uh, what else we got? Obviously, I gave, I gave a, little bit, a little bit right there of just the Babylonian context, but what other things? What other things did we talk about? It was written in two languages, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the book, and just the fact that it was written in two languages is one of them. The, the visions that are involved, uh, the questions of whether these prophecies were really prophecies, whether they really came true. We kind of talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how uh, those things help us understand uh, some of the validity, the authority that this book has. Uh, yeah, that's great. What else did we talk about? Yeah. Yeah, Daniel, Daniel paints a really uh, bright picture of the coming Messiah. Um, I don't even know if we can say it's the brightest because really I just feel like to me, it's almost in terms of like every book is kind of waiting for this king. And uh, it's so easy for us to now see how he fulfills so much of it. And that's one of the exciting parts about Daniel is that we can kind of, we can kind of look back and be like, man, yeah, Jesus fits this mold. Uh, but yeah, that's great. 
You guys remember who the god of Babylon was? Remember talking about that? Remember who that was? Maraduk. That's right, Maraduk. He was the god of the storm and the wind, and uh, that, that becomes a huge part of the imagery, um, not only for this story, uh, for Daniel's story, but really even more so, I would say, as you begin to look in the, the New Testament and even Revelation, and how Daniel actually becomes a framework in which we interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, but we're not going to do that in this class, because we need a lot more time. So, uh, yeah. All right, well, a couple things uh, for you I do want to mention is that we have this commentary um, in, the, in the Resource Center. If you guys want to dig a little deeper, um, it has, um, honestly, a part. Of, I've consulted this and several others uh, for, for a lot of this information, some historians as well. So if you're like, I really want to dig deeper, I can give you my resource list. Uh, but also, this is one that is just really handy. It's called the NIV Application Commentary on Daniel. It's written by Tremper Longman. He's a well-known Old Testament um, scholar. And this is a very easy book to read in the sense that he. this is all about how, how we can bridge the the gap between making a biblical story, especially one that was written, you know, in 500 BC, relevant to how we live our lives today. And so it explains a lot, but it also has a lot of application. So if you guys want to go a little deeper, this is in the Resource Center for $20. I want to make sure you're aware of that. And then um, in general, I won't be giving you notes in terms of... Uh, I mean, you can write down stuff in, your, in the binders that you have, but really what I want to give you in the binders is just kind of additional helpful thoughts or application or like, you know, I gave you today Solomon's Temple and what that would have looked like. I gave you uh, views of Christians and culture, and we'll kind of talk about why those things start to become relevant in the story of Daniel. These are kind of just extra things. That's really what I want to give you in those binders. It's just kind of extra resources to begin to use and look at. Um, and really what I want to encourage you to do, and some of you guys are, you know, you may hate this and that's okay, but I want you to take notes in your Bible. Uh, one of the most encouraging things that I've ever had is um, when I graduated high school, my dad gave me his old Bible and it had all the notes that he had ever taken in it. And it's just, I still, I mean, I still have, have that thing. Um, and I, and I look at it all the time. I, I look through it and then I used it in Bible college and I wrote a ton of notes in it for myself while I went through, um, schooling. And, you know, I know one day I'm going to be able to give that to my son. And the reality is it's a, it's a cool thing. First off, to have all of your notes in the place where you're reading scripture, because then you won't have to go find them somewhere else uh, while you're trying to, you can just look and be like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember talking about this and that, but even more than that, uh, to be able to, to hand those things over, I think is a really cool way for even uh, the people you love to see how you interacted with the word of God. And so um, my encouragement to you is, is take notes in your Bible. You certainly don't have to, um, but I just won't be giving you necessarily anything to take notes in in the binders. Those will, those, that'll always be kind of extra uh, resources that you can just have in terms of um, how those things might correspond to each week. So that's that. All right, so homework was we said go home and read through the whole book of Daniel and figure out what the main idea of the whole book is. And then we said, in doing so, also label the, each chapter with its main idea. And then in addition to that, um, any recurrences, so like words or events that you begin to see that keep coming up. Uh, first off, those of you who read through the book of Daniel, um, had, was it the first time in a long time? Raise your hand if it was the first time in a long time you'd read through it. Yeah. When you got to the visions, were you like, oh yeah, this doesn't make sense. 
because that's what happened to me. Uh, but no, it's it's really it's a good it's a good book, and you can definitely see the the line throughout of what Daniel is trying to say. So, uh, for you guys, what's the main idea? What did you find when you read through it again? The main idea of the book was God's sovereignty. Yeah, God's sovereignty. Yeah. Daniel's faith. Daniel's faith throughout it. And the vision. What's that? Visions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. The vision's over and over. What else you guys got? His kingdom, His kingdom is forever. Yeah, for sure. I think the kingdom is a, is a definitely a dominant thought. Yeah, I mean, ultimately there's lots of them, and I think that they all kind of culminate in this idea that behind the veil, behind the reality that we are experiencing God's in control, and that there is a kingdom that's unshakable. I mean, Hebrews talks about that. Hebrews 11 talks about this unshakable kingdom. Or maybe it's 12. Um, yeah, it's 12, I think. But the point is that there's this reality happening always behind the veil. And what Daniel does through those visions is he lets us take a peek behind the veil. And uh, what he sees is craziness that can't necessarily be defined, explained in human categories. Um, but it all is pointing towards a direction that God is in control. His kingdom is forever. So, awesome. All right. We won't go through the chapters, uh, but what we will do is, um, if those, that's kind of more for you, just the chapters and the recurrences, beginning to see kind of where the book is leading. You, what I really want for you is not to just hear my opinions on this book, but for you to really study it and discover your own. And so my hope is that I can kind of give you more homework every week that ultimately shows you how to study your Bible. Uh, because... It's, a, it's kind of a hard thing, to again, to study a book that came, came from the 500 B.C. area, you know. And so what I want to do is continue to give you the tools to do that. And so the, 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 the approach that I'm giving you is it's called the inductive Bible study approach. And so what you'll do is uh, you'll continue to do things like that. And I'll give you something else at the end of tonight. But at least for, um, for now, that's a good start. So basically the idea is read the book as many times as possible. So by the end, you have it memorized. And then you'll know it. So, um, but we'll get there. All right, so I want to jump into to Daniel. I want to go ahead and just read Daniel 1, 1 through 7. But would anyone like to read that for us? No one, huh? You're like, no, I'm not doing that. You want to read it? All right, you're going to have to raise your voice, though. Okay. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief Enoch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the Enochs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, 
Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Perfect, thank you. All right, guys, you ready to jump in this book? So, are you guys going to talk to me? Like, if I ask you questions, or do you just want me to go? Because I do want you to talk to me. I'm going to ask questions, and I promise they're not rhetorical, okay? Um, so, first off, what I want to do is, what's happening here? Like, what, what, is, what is Daniel beginning to unpack for us? What's happening in this book? See, you guys aren't talking. Someone needs to be assertive. Absolutely. He's given us the background of why the children of Israel are in captivity. And I would even give even more description to that is not only are they going into captivity, but they're taking their entire identity from them. When they're going to, into, into this exile, the, there are vessels from the temple that are being taken and put into the house of another god. There are these men, four men specifically that are mentioned, that are given new names. There are uh, these people that are ultimately being uprooted and learning a new culture. Because the Babylonians know that if they can begin to make these Jews assimilate into their culture, they can actually begin indoctrinating them with a new religion, a new faith. And that is the kind of the beginning of how Daniel sets up this book. Is that there is a faith and a God who is worth continuing to believe in regardless of the pressures that are being faced. I don't know how long that our country is always going to be a free place uh, to, to worship the one true God. We have a really big blessing within that. And it's not to look at the world or our country as some, you know, not to be pessimistic about it by any, by any means, but, but it is to acknowledge the blessing, right? I mean, it's an amazing thing, the fact that we can worship God so freely. That is not a blessing that everyone possesses. And the truth is what Daniel, what their people are experiencing within their culture, within their time, within their context, is that that is no longer a possibility. They're being drawn into something else. And they're being forced, they're being force-fed a new way of life, a new worldview. So what I want to do is I want to kind of walk through how this began to take shape. And we kind of talked about this a little bit before. If you turn to 2 Kings 20, uh, this is kind of where where it starts, and we'll just kind of reference it. I won't read it too much just because I want to make sure we get through everything tonight, um, but I'll kind of give you the, the gist, the summary of it, um, and you can just check my work uh, if, you, if you open there and kind of skim through it. But essentially what happens is Hezekiah is king right now, and he invites uh, the Babylonian king at the time into the temple to see all these treasures. And Isaiah, the prophet, comes and he's like, what have you done? What are you, why, why are you doing this? And basically what he says is, because you've done this, all your sons are going to go in, into captivity. Uh, that ultimately God is going to allow Babylon to take the people who are really a part of your family, who should have inherited the, the, the blessings and the promises of the covenant, and now they're going to be taken into, into captivity. Because he begins to allow... Um, the Babylonian king to see treasures as if they are Hezekiah's himself. He invites these people who are not a part of the covenant or a part of the promises to actually begin to behold and enjoy things that are only for the covenant people and especially for the worship of God. 
And so that kind of is the, that's the instigation. And then we kind of go on in 2 Kings 21 is when Manasseh becomes king. And it'll, it talks about basically how he, he practiced all kinds of idolatry, wickedness. We talked about this last week. He, he set up the Asherah pole in the temple. He made uh, Israel worship other gods. He sacrificed his own sons in the fire. He killed innocent people. And so that's kind of the last straw at this point for God to be able to say, okay, this is, uh, there has to be some sort of justice at this point. Uh, not only for my namesake, but, but also for the people of Israel to get them out of this pattern of sin. And then what happens is it kind of culminates in Jehoiakim. And ultimately it was Jehoahaz who was king before him, but he becomes deposed by the pharaoh Necho. The pharaoh Necho is, is the pharaoh of Egypt, and he basically takes Jehoahaz out. He takes him back to Egypt, and he puts Jehoiakim in his place. This is kind of the start of our historical bridge, why this is happening. Because what happens is Pharaoh Necho gets into a battle with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and they begin to, essentially, it's a, at Carchemish, and they have this battle, and Jehoiakim... Um, even though he had kind of made a commitment to, to Nebuchadnezzar to, to be a servant to him, to be a friend to him, he ultimately betrays him. He ultimately then, he tries to, he tries to fight on behalf of Pharaoh Necho. Well, that makes sense because Pharaoh Necho was the guy who put him in power in the first place. The problem is that he bet on the wrong guy because Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who ended up winning. And so when he did win, that didn't sit super well with Nebuchadnezzar uh, that Jehoiakim ended up turning his back on him and rebelling against him. So that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He comes into Israel and he begins to take um, Israelites into captivity. He begins to take them uh, back back to Babylon. Now, we have a couple things just to clarify, too. And again, I want to back this up within history because these are things that happened. Uh, We have a Babylonian priest uh, historian by the name of Barosis who who talks about these military campaigns that Nebuchadnezzar went on. Um, And, in fact, we also found a tablet in in the 1950s. It was 1956. We found this cuneiform tablet that actually cataloged a little bit of this Battle of Carchemish. This actually happened uh, between Necho and and Nebuchadnezzar. And what we begin to see about... uh, find out about Nebuchadnezzar is that he was really the king that started the expansion of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So up until this point, Assyria was, the, was the, just the giant power, which you kind of mentioned this last week. But then after Assyria, uh, the, the Babylonians and the Medes kind of teamed up together. They took down Assyria and Nabopolassar became king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So this is kind of the new Babylonian Empire that began to take place and shape because the Assyrians ultimately had kind of lost everything, which, is, which was also um, foretold as well by the prophets because God was going to punish Assyria for what they had done as well. And so now Nebuchadnezzar has come to power after his father, Nabopolassar, and this is kind of where, uh, where we kind of begin with this. Is Nebuchadnezzar would become the world power at this time. And so what we're going to see, and really this is the historical parts of this are really important, uh, especially when you get into the visions. For those of you guys who have read through the book this week, you probably began to realize that the way that he's pulling in history, we have to know it. Otherwise, we will never understand this book. So hopefully it's the, his, the historical part's not, not too, much of a, uh, a, too much of a bore for some of you guys, but it'll become really integral to the story as we begin to get into um, Alexander the Great and how he comes into play with the Empire of Greece. And then when his kingdom splits up into the four quadrants of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and how those visions begin to play out. So we'll get there. Um, I will slow down for all that and kind of walk you through a little bit. I will provide charts for that because... 
that's too much to remember, and um, there's a lot going on. But the history of this is, is important. Nebuchadnezzar is the world leader. He's the dictator. He's the Julius Caesar. He is the Alexander the Great of this time. Nobody is, is rivaling his power in any capacity. But, here's what I want to point out. Verse 2. Check out verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Here's some important things. This first part we talked about is written in Hebrew. Chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. The only time the name of God, Yahweh, is used in this book is in chapter 9. When, when Daniel's back in Hebrew and he begins to pray. Now, we talked a little bit about the name of God. I don't know if you guys remember this, but talked about the fact that they didn't put vowels on it. They didn't want it pronounced. What they wanted was to keep it sacred and holy, right? And so, when you see it in your Bible, what you see are a capital Lord. You see capital, or you see Lord, but it's in all capitals, right? It's interesting right here that when he says, and the Lord, that he does not use the name of God. And here's what most people believe why he does this is because he specifically is speaking of the fact that it was God who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It was not the power of Nebuchadnezzar. If God wanted Jehoiakim safe, if God wanted him pulled back, he would have done so. But the point is that God is in control. And when he uses this word, Lord, Adonai, he is not describing the identity of Yahweh. He's describing his activity. And when we begin to really allow ourselves to see the glory, the sovereignty, the control, the goodness of God taking shape even in the midst of this, even though He's giving His people over, there's this constancy of Him. He's still in control all the time. All the time. Now what I also want you to see is that He begins to talk about the vessels. The vessels of the house of God. I want to point out one thing especially. Is that the house of God is actually, there's a definite article within that that's not translated. Uh, does everybody has, have house of God in their translations? Is that what you see? There's actually a definite article in there in the Hebrew, house of the God. And this is a beautiful point that Daniel makes. We're very thankful for it for two reasons. He's making a theological point right here. Because he's saying that this is the house of the God. And the vessels got put in the house of a God. This God that's really lesser, that doesn't exist. The house of the God is the one that we're talking about. The one that is the God, the only God, the one and only Lord over all things. What is helpful about this verse, the fact that he says, house of the God, is not only is he making a theological point, but actually he ends up making a historical one. It's part of the reason that we know that Daniel wrote this whole book and that nobody added to it or it wasn't other authors that were ultimately compiling something because every time he talks about the house of the God, he always uses this phrase, house of the God. And so thankfully, in his, in his desire to make a theological point, he also made a historical one for us who inherit this book so many years later that this was in fact authored by this man. That this was the man who actually went through these events. Now, when we look at the, some of the vessels, um, the vessels of the house, this is why I, I, I put the, the temple on there. I gave you guys the picture of the temple. It doesn't necessarily show some of the vessels that were taken. Um, at least as far as we know, probably a lot of those vessels were taken. But, you know, you're going to see on there kind of the, 
the temple layout. It'll show you where the altar was and where uh, the Holy of Holies would have been, which is where the ark would have been held, and where the altar of incense was, and the table of showbread, and the lampstand, and all these things. All of them had these symbolic reasons for being there. We're not going to go through all those because it would take a long time and it doesn't have that much to do with what we're saying. But I just wanted to provide it so that everyone can have an awareness. This is what we're talking about. This is the place where the Holy God dwelt. This is the place where He allowed His presence to be. And nobody would enter the Holy of Holies ever except for one man, the high priest, once a year, Day of Atonement. He would go in and he would make a sacrifice on behalf of everybody. Now what happens is what they're saying is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his people went in and took vessels from this place, plates, dishes, the things that were made and used for sacrifices. Now, part of it is, well, how did they do that? You know, if you read through the Levitical code, which I don't know how, if you guys wanted to go to sleep, you could do that. You could read Leviticus. Uh, but the point is that they make the case that if anybody enters the Holy of Holies, they will be struck down dead. Struck down dead. Well, why aren't they? They went into the temple and they weren't struck down dead. They just robbed the place. It's because the presence of God is not there anymore. It's gone. He left. Because the sins of the people, the unfaithfulness to the covenant, ultimately moved them to a place where God no longer was dwelling in that place with them. Because they were no longer offering the sacrifices. They were no longer worshiping Him any longer. It became a place that was dedicated to other gods. And so God allowed it to become ransacked. Because God is not about the place. God's presence, God's power, God's purpose is not about where He dwells. That's not what it's about. And the temple was always a placeholder for really our lives and how we would begin to hold and house the presence of God. Now, if we go on, um, one of the things that it talks about, well, should I talk about it now? Well, should I come back later? Now, okay, I'll talk about it now. So, here's an interesting point about the vessels. Is that the vessels, uh, when it's talking about these holy vessels, I, I tend to think that what is actually happening here, what Daniel's doing here, is he's making a symbolic uh, literary parallel. As, as uh, kind of associating them with the actual people who were taken from the promised land. Because what he's talking about, these holy vessels being taken away into this new temple. First off, that was really a common thing that empires, that kingdoms, nations would do when they ransacked a village. They would take their gods and they would take them and put them in and really make them their own and put them in their own house because it was a symbol of that, of how much more powerful their God was. And what I think was actually Daniel's beginning to do with the language a little bit is to say that the people are like these holy vessels. And if you'll, be, you'll begin to notice later on in the first chapter that it begins to talk of Daniel and Meshach and Abednego and Shadrach as these people who are without blemish. And it's, and it's using the sacrificial language that was, that was we really one of the only places we find those things is in Leviticus when they're talking about the sacrifices and, the, and how those sacrifices should look. And I think what Daniel's trying to do is he's trying to pull these things together to say that these vessels are holy. They're still set apart. And that even though they're being brought into a house that is not theirs, they will be brought home. They will be brought home to the place where God desires them to be. And that's what we're going to find out in chapter 5 when Belteshazzar begins begins to uh, take those vessels out and distribute them so that people drink out of them and then he dies because of it. Because at the end of the day, the people of God 
are a holy, sacred people, and God is protecting them. God is over them. God is sovereign. I'm going to say that a hundred times because that is the purpose of this book. That regardless of what you experience, God is in control. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is purposeless. He's doing something. Are you listening? Are you hearing what he's trying to accomplish? Um, and really, that's, that's a huge part of, where, of what really this book will do. So, um, so within verse 2, man, we're still in verse 2, y'all. This is good, but we might be here all night. Verse 2, uh, if so, would someone read Genesis 11, 1 through 9? If someone find Genesis 11, 1 through 9? Does anyone want to read that? You want to read it? All right, speak up loud. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build a great city. For ourselves, with the tower that reaches into the sky, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. And that is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. All right. So anyone see how those stories connect? Anybody see where the connection is there? Or do you want me to point it out? Shinar is mentioned in verse 2 at the end. If you see, it says, uh, And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar is also the town where the Tower of Babel was built. Interesting. Most of what I have read suggests that what's happening is Daniel's making using this archaic city to remind everybody about this town in Babylon that they are being brought to. And reminding them of this time in the Tower of Babel when man tried to set himself up as God. When they tried to build a monument to themselves, to exalt themselves above the highest place. He's reaching back to the, to the people of the Israelites and reminding them of this story of when man tried to become God himself. This is probably the worst part of this class in the sense of we're probably all here either because God wants us to minister to people who have pride or because He's trying to work on ours. The reality is that what you are going to see throughout most of this book is every single king trying to set themselves up as God Himself. And He's reaching back to this story in Babylon, this old Babylon, this old Babylonian kingdom, when the people would begin to build this monument that ultimately reflected their own achievement. And he moved them out. He scattered them. Now, I think that this says it in the heading of Genesis 12, but you guys see the heading of Genesis 12? Uh, does anyone see what that says? 
The call of Abram? Yes. This is a really important part. Because in chapter 11, God sees the people trying to set themselves up as God and He dismantles them. He sends the people out. Every single person begins to adopt a new language, a new nation, and they separate. What happens in chapter 12? God calls a new nation. God calls a new nation and it will be based off a promise and a covenant and their seed and their sin and it will be as their, their children will be as, as numerous as the, the pebbles on the shore, as the stars in the sky. Because regardless of what we experience, God is in control, God has a purpose, God is moving it forward. No man will ever set himself up against God. And that's what Daniel wants his readers to know, even though he's going into exile, even though he's going into Babylonian captivity, even though Nebuchadnezzar is the world leader and he will build his own statue, even though uh, Darius and Cyrus and uh, Belshazzar will set themselves up as kings, it won't matter. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. So what I need us to realize, become aware of, is either the people in our life that need ministering to because of the pride or become self-aware of the pride that maybe we're struggling with. And here's the worst part. is Pride is really hard to know whether you're struggling with it or not. It's kind of the foundation of pride is that you're saying, I, I don't struggle with that. I don't at all struggle with this idea that I have all of my stuff together, that I have a status and an achievement or a security that I don't really need to worry about anything else. But God wants to invade that. God wants to humble us because we are not big enough for the job. We will never find the satisfaction that we are trying to have in ourselves, in our status, in our achievement, in what we begin to earn. And what I love, Augustine, Augustine explains this, this idolatry uh, even of ourselves as, as a way of saying, he, start, he starts talking about a starving man. And what this starving man does is he begins licking this piece of, uh, or licking this, this picture of bread hoping that it will satisfy him. And that's what idolatry is. That's what we do when we set anything up as God outside of ourselves. But Daniel's constant push to us is that God is in control. God is sovereign. God is Lord. Um, and so what we begin to see, even as, as we look at this story, is ultimately how God is, is calling his people, but also being faithful to them, even as they enter into punishment. Again, this is not just persecution they are enduring. It's punishment. Uh, but in still, still, God is faithful. Okay, so who is uh, Ashpenaz? Uh, that, th- it says that he's a eunuch, and this word is the word, the Hebrew word sarisa, and it actually may not mean eunuch. It may mean, mean official. I don't, does anybody have the, the word official in their Bible? A couple people? So that can be translated either way. Um, the, the part that makes this meaningful is that Isaiah and Isaiah 39 prophesies about this as well. And if you looked at Isaiah 39.7, you're going to see a prophecy basically of him talking to Hezekiah about how his sons will be taken and made eunuchs. And so some people think, well, were, were uh, Daniel and and uh, Meshach and Abednego, Shadrach, were they eunuchs? <laughs> you know, were they were they castrated because of what that would have meant, not only to their position in the Babylonian kingdom, but their inability to provide any more heirs even for Israel, and how they would begin to expand any more of those people. Um, Josephus, who's a who's a historian uh, within the first century, 
or second century, uh, he begins to write that, they, that he thinks that they are. But we're not quite sure. I mean, it could be official, it could be eunuch, but the point is that this eunuch uh, or this official is ultimately preparing them for a similar role that he has himself. And so we don't really know. It's just kind of an interesting bit there. Um, so one of the things in verse 4 we begin to see is, again, uh, Nebuchadnezzar taking the Israelites and beginning to indoctrinate them, to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. And one of the things he does is uh, he begins to change their names. Uh, and so one of the, uh, Daniel, first off, I'll give you a little bit of what their names mean. So Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord is helper. The Lord is helper. You guys got all that who are writing? Yeah, I can do it again. Daniel is God is my judge. Hananiah is the Lord is gracious. Mishael is who is what God is. And Azariah is the Lord is helpful, is helper, and probably helpful, but it's helper. But when their names change, their new names mean this. Uh, Belteshazzar means may a god protect his life or a goddess protect the king. And it's also assumed within these new names that they're all reflecting Babylonian gods, um, or at least a god surrounding that culture. So Bel, Belteshazzar, may a god protect his life or a goddess protect the king. That's the role that Daniel will end up playing for, for many of the kings, protecting them, telling them the visions and dreams. Shadrach is, uh, they think it possibly could be a variation of another god, but we're not quite sure which one. Meshach, they think, might be a possible variation of Marduk. And then... In addition to that, Abednego, they think, means servant of Nebu, which was Nebu was the son of Marduk. So uh, basically what, what the Babylonians have done is they've taken them into their empire, given them names that reflect their gods, their culture. They've stripped them of their identity. That's what they're trying to do. We don't know how old they, they were, but uh, one of the things that Plato mentions is that the Persians started training their use around 14 or 15 and so we think that that was probably the case for Babylon too. And so we think that they were probably 14 or 15 years old when they actually entered into exile, uh, which is why it makes sense that David was there till 535-ish BC, uh, because that's a long, I mean, that's 70 years essentially that, that Daniel was, was there. So if he went in being like, you know, 30, 30 or 40 years old, he probably wouldn't have made it that long. So, uh, but they think it was probably that, about that age because that's really a moldable age. It's one where they can really begin to teach them the languages of things. Um, and really for Babylon, their language was Akkadian. We kind of talked about how you know, chapter 2 to chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Um, that is kind of the, 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 nation, the national or like the, the world, the most popular language in the world that they use in commerce and trade, you know, when they're, when they're doing things with other country. Akkadian is, is the specific language for the Babylonians. And so that would have been something they probably learned within that as well. The point of all of it really is that they're trying to assimilate them again into this new, this new culture and ultimately reprogram them uh, to believe what, what it is they, they want them to believe. Um, and so, really, the question for us is, is 
is similar in some ways in terms of our own spiritual life. Like, what are we taking in? You know, what are we allowing ourselves to be reprogrammed by? You know, how much uh, is, is what we receive something that God has, desires for us to receive? Do we begin to watch the shows and the culture that, that has, that, uh, you know, we become so integrated into our culture? Has it become so much so that we forget that God has called us to something holy? Only you can answer that question, but I don't want that application to, for us to miss that. The, the book of Daniel wants to breathe, and uh, the way that it does that is for us to give it an audience and to remember that it's a living book. God's Word is living. It's active. And the, the question that it's confronting us with is, these men were brought into a culture, learned their language, had new names, uh, were, would have ultimately were going to be forced into a new diet, read that literature... Guard yourself. Guard yourself. I mean, that's, the, that's part of the message that we, we have to remember, is that we may not be being pulled into exile, but can we just all agree that we, who, who knows what the next 20 years holds? I mean, who knows the things that ultimately will come about through the news and through um, the, the literature that we will study in our schools? And, I mean, we don't know. We don't know. But the thing that we do know is that God has given us enough to be rooted in Him, in Him alone. And that's what God has called us to. Again, God has not called us. God has, God has placed us in a nation to be a part of, but He's called us to His kingdom. And the difference between that is gigantic. How are we investing in His kingdom? How are we investing in His kingdom? All right, so I want to stop there. Any questions at this point that we can kind of begin to unpack a little bit? I have one question. Yes. I probably have lots of questions, but isn't it unusual for them to, to get prisoners... And then put them in such an elevated place in their government. It would seem like the prisoners would be kind of on a lower level than that. Yeah, so she asked, isn't it, isn't it strange that they would take prisoners and then elevate them to such a status within the government? And probably yes, but I think that what we're seeing is because of the assimilation. What they are trying to do is not just dominate the Israelites, but move them into their culture so as to make... So as to expand theirs, you know, uh, and the Greeks did this too, and the Persians as well. Uh, the Greeks are probably the most well-known because they were the most successful. The amount of things that became Hellenized, you know, and when I say that, I mean the amount of things that ultimately adopted Greek culture uh, because they did this. And, and Rome as well. Rome did the same thing. Rome said, just be peaceful and pay taxes and you'll be good. And so we start to see this new shift in how cultures or how uh, nations began to dominate those around them. And it, was, it was, became sneakier. You know? It became not about um, lowering them into a, a status that was beneath them, but actually adopting them in some ways and therefore extending their influence and their armies and their wealth. Um, so I think that's part of it. But the, the main part of it, honestly, I would say is the provision of God. And that's, uh, I, w- I think that more than anything, that's the thing we can't miss is ultimately God's hand. Yeah, absolutely. And what that, you'll see that uh, God gave them favor. God gave them favor. God gave them favor. God is still in the details of this, uh, more importantly than anything else, is that he is still absolutely working in and through these people. And what we begin to see is that their knowledge, their wisdom, their understanding, it says is ten times more, ten times more than anyone else around them. And that becomes an important factor. So, yeah. Any more questions? Yes, Roberta. I think it's interesting the age group that they targeted. 
Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I think well, and truthfully, we don't really know what age they were. So perhaps they were younger, but you know, as far as we know, the, the really the only information we get from that is because of what the Persians did. So perhaps they were younger, um, but yeah, they definitely would have had to be youngish to be able to be impacted that much. I don't think a a fully um, a fully grown male Jew would have so easily gave up his religion in this. Well, maybe because uh, he already d- was unfaithful to the covenant. But we see something else happening with Daniel's story with his faithfulness that is uh, really amazing. And again, because it's coming along the same side of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel's kind of calling out Israel for, for being this, it's kind of amazing that these young men being called into such a, a hard environment would be able to be faithful. That's, I mean... It's amazing, yeah. It sounds kind of like Nebuchadnezzar kind of softened towards them also. Uh-huh, yeah, he began to. And then he changed his mind as well and threw him in the fire. I mean, he was bipolar, I guess. I don't know, but yeah, he did. Yeah, it's hard and soft, hard and soft, exactly. I mean, he, I mean it's not, at one point, he'll humble himself before God, too. It's, I mean, yeah. Any other questions? All right, we'll keep going. All right, so who wants to read Daniel 1, 8 through 16? Any takers? Or I can do it too. All right, I'll do it, y'all. I'll do it. This is what it says. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the foods, who eat the king's food, be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four... Oh, wait, I'm going to stop there. Yeah, I'm going to stop there. So we'll stop there. Uh, let's begin to kind of unpack this a little bit. Daniel's diet. Everybody, has everybody heard of Daniel's diet? I feel like, if not, it's, good, like, it's, it's like another Whole30 or another, I don't know, all those diet plans, you know. They are, they're always coming about. I want to make sure... I mean, this is not a diet plan that's happening here. As much as people want to make it to be... The, what, what we begin to see within this diet plan is the fact that they're only eating vegetables and they're getting fatter. That does not happen when you eat vegetables. It's not a diet plan. What's happening, we're still witnessing the miraculous. And sometimes we become, uh, that. We, really we hear these things again in culture and we kind of accept them because we've heard it before. you know. But in reality, what's happening is something that God is still over. God's still moving. And it's that God is ultimately making these people fatter because that's ultimately what 
people saw as wealthy and in good in a good standing within this time period. The you know the the more hefty you were, the more uh, the more the more money you had. You know the the more better off you were. What a time to be alive. You know, uh, and so really what we're beginning to see again is just we are seeing the power of God at work because He's making vegetables act like Twinkies, and it's amazing. I mean, who could do that? You know, who could do that? So, a couple things of, we don't really know why exactly Daniel had made this oath of like, we're not going to eat this, we're not going to eat these things. Because um, some people have, have suggested that maybe it was because they went against the, um, the dietary laws that they had. Uh, but the problem with that is that, like wine, for instance, wasn't against the dietary law. Wine was fine to drink. And even the meat, we don't know what the meat was, but like a lot of meat was okay to eat as well within the dietary laws. And so some people are like, we don't think that's why it was. Uh, they think maybe it was because um, that it was offered to idols. Uh, the, the, the food and the wine was offered to idols, and so they were, they were staying away from it. But then, like, it's hard to believe one of the vegetables weren't also offered to idols. But then also we see in chapter 10, it kind of implies that actually Jesus had, or Jesus Kind of, no. Daniel had been eating the, the meat and um, Daniel had been eating the meat and drinking the wine. And so if, if it were true that it was because it was offered to idols, it would be hard to believe that at some point he was like, eh, yeah, I'll go ahead and take a bite, you know? So we don't really know exactly why. There's a couple different theories um, within it. And I think the one that seems most plausible to me is, is because um, ultimately they were, they were fasting. They were pulled into this... this Ultimately, the society that were putting all of these new constraints on them, they were teaching them all these new things, and by actually forcing themselves into a discipline of, of basically not eating meat, not eating the food, even the food, you know, even the, they, they're trying to, to assimilate them even by the food that they're eating. And so what Daniel and his friends do, perhaps, is they just say, you know what, we're going to fast. We're going to withhold ourselves. We're going to be disciplined in this. We would love to drink some wine and eat some meat uh, because that's delicious, but we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to abstain from those things because in doing so, we're actually beginning to develop a new discipline and staying faithful to God. And I think that's, that's a pretty, um, I'd say pretty persuasive, persuasive thing. And then the other thing is, um, the other thing that people also... Um, believe is that it could have been let me see, I can't remember off the top of my head oh, that they only wanted to eat what was growing naturally and so they would only eat the, the vegetables that were ultimately natural products of the earth as a way to, to rely on God's provision, um, which is a possibility but I think it's more again from that abstinence sense that they, the discipline uh, ultimately that fasting brings in, in taking things out of your life that um, can so easily become the center of them. They, they actually were able to, to build their faithfulness in the midst of persecution and exile instead of otherwise. So, I don't know. What do you guys think? Which one are you, which one are you more convinced by? Abstinence or... I shouldn't use that word. That's, I mean, these people go to a certain place in their mind with that word. Uh, uh, abstaining from, uh, from the... the uh, the riches and the, the food of the king, or would you would you say that you would that you would say it's probably the growing like trusting in the provision of God, the growing things from the earth? One or two? One. Raise your hand if it's one. Raise your hand if it's two. Nice. All right. Cool. I like that. Well, it could be either one. Could be both. Who knows? 
but it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. The fact of the matter is that ultimately God, God, what God does is a miraculous event. He not only gives them the health, the ability to grow, uh, with, <laughs> to get fat by eating vegetables, but he also gives them intellect, wisdom, understanding uh, to be able to do so. And this is kind of why, uh, now we're going to kind of enter into why I began to add in the views of Christ, uh, Christians and culture. Uh, so if you look at that document, what I wanted, what I, the reason I wanted to do this was, again, I don't ever want to just teach a book and for it to not have some sort of cultural re- relevance to what it is, we're, how, we, how it is we're living. You know, I don't want to just talk about theological significance. I want to begin to dive into why this matters for us today. And so what, is, what you see here is a really popular, it's pretty well known, you may have heard it before or read it before. It's five different views of how Christ, uh, or of how Christians operate within culture. And this is developed by an old, uh, older theologian who's passed away now uh, named Richard Niebuhr. And what he's done is he's, he's kind of asked this question, how has God called Christians to work within culture? Um, and he begins to kind of basically give these layouts uh, within what, what it could be. It could be a Christ against culture model. That model is, we kind of talked about that uh, last week, is this idea that we're going to separate ourselves so completely from the world. We're going to preserve our holiness to make ourselves sacred, that we're ultimately going to reject any part of culture at all. And so this would include people like the Mennonites um, and the Quakers and th- these people who are like just dedicated to holiness. Um, it could be Christ of culture, which is, these are people who are like, basically, culture is a good thing. It can be embraced um, completely. Ultimately, God, has, has, because of what God has done, he's allowed us to kind of enjoy the things of, of, um, of culture. And the truth doesn't necessarily conflict as much as we think it does. Um, and then that, usually the people who believe that are kind of like more liberal in their Christianity, you know. Uh, they're, not, they're not believing in, they don't usually believe in miracles and things like that. And so the, the Bible becomes not necessarily authoritative word of God, but a really helpful guidebook, you know, a really helpful moral book. And so what they can do with that for them is they go into culture then and they're like, hey, this might be something you'd be interested in. If not, that's cool too. Um, Christ above culture is this idea that ultimately uh, Christ is supreme in all that he does. It's kind of what's been called like a synthesis model in the sense that God has called Christians to be in the world, uh, synthesized with it, but also kind of rejecting it. There's like this tension going on within how Christians are living in the world. Uh, The Christ and the culture and paradox is a more dichotomized view of like we're living in culture, but we're separate from it. And so we need to continue to be separate from it, but also be in it at the same time because um, God has called us to like tell people about Jesus and kind of make his name known. And, and these are very simple, simple definitions of these things, but they kind of give the general point. The last one is the transformer. Christ transforms the culture. And this is the one that believes that Christ has called us to be in culture, but to be transforming it. And that ultimately what we believe about goodness, truth, reality, apply not just to us but every single person. And therefore to propagate those things in politics and in our business models and everything leads to human flourishing. The point of all this is to say that when we look at the book of Daniel, what model do we see? And is that the model we are to take? And have you ever asked yourself, how is God calling me to live in culture? Because God's calling Daniel to live in a culture that is not like his. He ha- they're trying to force him to adopt their gods and their languages and their food and their names. That they would give up their identity completely. So how is he supposed to act within culture? How are you called to act within culture? Are you supposed to transform it? 
Are you supposed to be in it, but not really a part of it? Are you, opposed, are you supposed to embrace it completely? Are you supposed to step out of it completely? The point is that we have to begin to understand how God is calling us to. And the reality is that I don't think God calls us to any one of these in particular, to be honest with you. But I think they're really helpful in beginning to ask the question, what is God calling me to do? Because I think that He does call us to all of them at some point. There are going to be times where we do have to separate ourselves from culture. There are going to be times we have to transform it. There are going to be times when we have to be within it, but not be a part of it. And we have to begin to distinguish these things and also become self-aware of where we're at in the process. Are we, are we a part of culture so much that we don't realize that we offend God? Are we a part of culture so much that we allow things? I mean, I, 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 don't, this is, I want to make sure this is clear. This is not political in any way, but I think it's worth talking about. Is uh, In New York, you know, some of you guys may have heard that they just recently legalized abortion all the way up until the baby's born. Uh, we don't get to decide always what role we play in culture or how, or how we should vote or all of these things. But, but what I believe that God has called us to do is to think about it. Because God has called us to a role within it and it probably falls within one of these things. And what you need to begin to distinguish is how that begins to take shape within your life. How, what is God calling you to? Often, I think, especially in the, the blessings and the, and the things that God has given us thus far, I think God's called us to transform it. For us, for, this is for, for Americans, I think that's probably true. But it probably won't always be the case. And, you know, it, I could still be wrong. But I think that God has called us to be an active part of the change within it. And so we should be. We shouldn't allow the place where we are, our culture, where we're growing up, uh, be something that ultimately is separating us from being in holy communion with God. Because that's the most important thing. And that thing can actually begin to invade other parts of our life when we begin joining them. So... I want, I want you to begin just really wrestling with that um, as we talk about a people who are in a culture that is not their own. How are we to act in ours as well? Well, if again, we kind of talked about this already, but in verse 9, what it says is, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Favor. We talked about that. Favor. God is at work. Even in this moment, God is giving favor. He's giving the, the, this likability, this, this unnatural, personable, amiable flavor to these Israelites in a way that ultimately they are giving privileges that not everybody else is getting. And one of the things we see in verse 11 as well, um, you'll see, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel. The chief of the eunuchs initially rejected this thing. Uh, but then Daniel talks to the steward, which actually... Again, that word steward, it could also be uh, translated as an actual name, Meltzer. Uh, we don't know whether it was a name of a person or whether it was just, again, like a steward, uh, another uh, worker within. But ultimately, Daniel wins him over and allows him, and, the, and this guy allows him to begin to uh, enjoy the blessings of, of what it means to um, eat those vegetables and, and then ultimately be nourished by them. So, now what I want to do is we're going to, I'm going to read. 17 through 21, because I want to make sure to get through this. It's already 7.34. So I want to make sure to get through this. But this is kind of how chapter 1 will end. This is what it says. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A wisdom, an understanding, this ability to interpret dreams, this is not the result of something that Daniel had on his own. It is the miraculous outworking of God and His sovereignty and His control and His Lordship. He is moving the people of God to accomplish His purpose. Nothing is purposeless. Nothing is meaningless. He's trying to use Daniel in a way that not only will bring favor to the Israelites as a whole, but will actually begin to accomplish the purposes of God even in a kingdom that he did not choose, that God did not choose. And he's beginning to have a wisdom to interpret things. Now, I don't know about you, but wisdom is something that I desire. Uh, Everyone on our creative arts team will tell you, every single week, we do prayer requests for our volunteers and everything. And I ask for wisdom every single week. Because James says that if you ask for it, God will give it to you. And so I was like, ever since I read that, I was like, well, I'm just going to ask for it all the time. And hopefully it happens. Wouldn't it be great to know all the time what you were supposed to do? Wouldn't it be great to know all the time uh, what direction you were supposed to go or where God was calling you to? Wisdom. Proverbs defines wisdom as the fear of God. Wisdom. Wouldn't it be great to have this understanding that allowed us to make the right decisions at the right time? Mark Christian actually defined wisdom once in a sermon, and it's stuck with me ever since. And he said that wisdom is seeing the world as God sees it. And what I think really wisdom is, a, a, a really good way of understanding wisdom, as if you saw puzzle pieces, and you, just, you saw them, they were all on the table, but you knew where they went. You knew the picture that they were trying to complete. I think that what God is calling us to with wisdom is to begin to understand what God wants to do and then to carry it out. To begin to see how the key fits exactly within the keyhole. How the puzzle comes together to form this amazing, beautiful picture. The problem is that we have so many things competing for truth in our life that it's so hard to distinguish the difference. In fact, Romans 8 says that in our prayers, we hardly know what to pray for. You know, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and what does He say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be His name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Well, what's His will? How many of us get stuck in prayer because we just don't know what to pray for? And yet one of the beautiful parts of what God has given us is the fact that when we pray, the Holy Spirit is right there with us. And when we don't know what to pray for, it says this in Romans 8, around verse 20-ish. He says, the, it, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf with words, with groans that words cannot express. He's beginning to move the Holy Spirit into our life in a, such a powerful way that God begins to answer our prayers in the ways that we would have asked had we known what He knows. And what wisdom begins to do when, it be, when we allow it into our life is it begins to radically change the way that we see people, the way that we see the world, so that we have a lens in which we begin to accomplish the purposes and the will of God. 
Daniel is not a special man. He's he's just simply been equipped to do special things. And those special things are always still for the glory of God. And one of the biggest temptations that we will all face is we will all want to use wisdom for our own glory, for our own power, so that we can feel okay with where we're at, content, feeling right about the decisions that we've made. God doesn't give us that luxury. He simply says, trust me because I'm over things, not you. And this, this, this thirst, this hunger for control is what, is what really gives us a thirst and hunger for wisdom, to know what is true, to know what is right, to know what step to take. And yet what God is saying is that I've given this to Daniel to use, knowing that he's going to accomplish my purposes, not his own. What we begin to do with most Bible characters is when we're reading the Bible, we actually begin to imagine ourselves as the main character. I don't know if you guys do this. I guess maybe I'm just confessing myself. I actually begin to think of myself as being the one that God is doing all of these amazing things through. But what about Isaiah? You guys remember Isaiah? Yeah? He was the guy that uh, David stole his wife from him, and then he sent him to the front lines. But before that, he sent him home to sleep with his wife so that he could cover up the fact that he impregnated her. But Isaiah was so honorable that he said, no, I'm not going to do this while my brothers are at war. So he slept in front of the gate. And then that's when David sent him out to the front lines and he died. Maybe that's who God's calling us to be. Maybe the the real main character of our story is just simply Jesus. And instead of it being like Moses and David and Daniel, instead of it being like these kings and these prophets who always messed up, we can finally look to the one main character who did not. We can finally allow ourselves to trust and relinquish control and begin to have a wisdom that simply says, if Jesus tells me to do this, I'm going to. That the right thing can actually be available and possible, even if it seems to everyone else like it's the wrong one. We begin, we, what Daniel is constantly going to show us is that there's a Messiah coming, and he's much more wise than I. And the wisdom that he will give you will still surpass that that Daniel has, because the Holy Spirit is a part of our life now. And even though God left their temple, he decided to inhabit ours. And our temple is our bodies. Our temple is the church. And what God is continually calling us to do is live in a way within our culture that continues to embody His goodness, His grace, His wisdom. And we don't always have to know the right things. We just have to trust that God does. Because nothing is meaningless. Nothing is purposeless. God's moving you somewhere. And He desires to accomplish it, and He will. And in times of suffering and sorrow, man, Romans 5 is a good verse where suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And in times of of joy and just amazing blessing and favor, man, God is good again. Because God often puts us in the places where we need to be either to teach us something really good or to use us for something really good. And the point of what Daniel continually calls us to is that this idea, God is in control, God is sovereign. God is Lord. He explains God's activity. You know His name, but he's, he, he wants to explain His activity. He's the Lord. It's the house of the God. This is God Almighty. This is Yahweh. And so as, we, as, this, as this chapter ends, um, it ends saying that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What it's doing there is it says, it's saying Daniel was there a long time, and he did well. He was there through... 
the Babylonian kings all the way up to the Persian one. He was there because God's favor was on him. He was moving him forward to a place. That's the point. That's the point. Now, last thing first, I do want to clarify. Um, within the verse 21, it says, And Daniel was there until... How many of you guys have until? How many of you guys have something different than that? Anybody else? you have something different? Unto. Unto. So what the Greek word there, is, or sorry, not Greek, Hebrew word is there is hayah, which is to be. It's, it's really what it's saying is Daniel continued until. Daniel continue, continued through uh, the first year of King Cyrus. Because what people often do with this verse is because of the English translation, we get to chapter uh, 9, and Cyrus is in power, and it's, it's in the third year of Cyrus. And so what people tend to do sometimes when they read this English translation is they're like, well, there's a contradiction here, because this says until the first year of Cyrus, and he's doing his ministry in the third year of Cyrus. But that's not the point of this, this whole bracket. The point of the bracket is to show that Daniel thrived through all these kingdoms. It's not trying to put a date in a way that shows that then he got to go home. You know, that's not what's happening. So I do want to clarify that. Uh, the point is that ultimately God's in control. God is good. So I want to end tonight with some questions and I'll give you some homework. So questions about anything? Roberta, what's up? Um, the, of the other Israelites, I, I, we don't have any information in terms of you know how that would have impacted them. Honestly, at, at this point, um, the the closest that we get is you know Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They're all talking to people that a lot of them are still in in Israel. In fact, uh, Lamentations is a very short. It's a short book, five chapters. It's really a, a literary work of art. Um, it's where we get the song "Great is Thy Faithfulness," uh, because what what most people are talking to are the are the Israelites that are still in um, in Israel. And one of the things that happens in Lamentations, which is really beautiful, is well, I'm going to say it's really beautiful, but what it, what it concludes at not what I'm about to say, because basically it starts with catastrophe. Uh, it starts with this. I mean, women are eating their own babies to survive is what, what Lamentations begins to talk about. I mean, it's really terrible in terms of what the Israelites have to do because they're, they're in famine. They, are, they have no food. They've been just desolated completely. Um, and what Jeremiah does as a literary, um, in a, in a literary device is he used what's called a chiasm. And that basically just comes from the Greek letter key, uh, which you probably have seen a, at a fraternity or something, but it's just the letter X. You know, think of the letter X. And the literary device that that some authors use, not just Jeremiah, but I mean this is used throughout lots of different um, books of the Bible, but even outside outside of that. It's just a, it's a popular liter- literary device. But what it does is it takes parallel ideas and it puts them at the same ends of the spectrum, and then it moves in with another parallel idea, and then it moves in with another parallel idea, and then it ultimately kind of culminates in this one centerpiece, this one centerpiece. And so what, what, what Lamentations does through this book is it basically says, we've, this is terrible, things have gone terribly wrong, uh, we've turned into terrible people, you know, and it kind of goes to this very middle, the very middle, of the, the climax of the book. It says, great is thy faithfulness. Regardless of what we see around us, great is thy faithfulness. 
Regardless of what we have done, great is thy faithfulness. And so we're not quite sure of how the Jews were, were you know, the Israelites were encountering the Babylonians. We, we really, we more get the story of how the prophets were encountering the Israelites um, in Israel. But all this is happening during the Babylonian times. You guys should read Lamentations. That's not homework, but you should do it. Any other questions? Cool. Well, uh, your homework this week is to go through chapter 1 and 2 and, and go through each paragraph and give headings to those. So now you're going to give main ideas to each paragraph. What is this paragraph about? And again, you're going to keep your eye on recurrences. And so what we mean by recurrences are words or events that Daniel keeps using over and over again. But then now that we're getting deeper into the actual paragraphs themselves, I also want you to keep an eye out for literary devices. So what I mean by that is parallelism. You know, if it seems like there's, there's a combining, like, for instance, that's what I thought was going on in chapter 1 with the holy vessels of the temple and those men without blemish, is that there's some sort of parallel happening where we're talking about the holy things of God being brought into uh, Babylon were being brought into exile, and yet they will be returned. And so you're kind of looking for these types of things, uh, parallels, or even the opposite, kind of doing the the antithetical aspects of like what what's being contrasted here. You know, what's being contrasted or compared, and uh, trying to look at uh, what things that ultimately Daniel's using to make his points, to emphasize his points. So chapter one, chapter two, each paragraph, main ideas, recurrences that are going on within them, and. Uh, We'll just study this book together on your own time. So, guys, thanks for hanging out with me. Let me pray for us real quick, and then uh, you can leave. All right? Deal? Father God, we're so thankful for who you are, the fact that you remind us that you're in control, the fact that you remind us that uh, we can rest and trust you, that we can throw off all anxiety, that we can throw off even the things that, that uh, desire to eclipse your place in our life, Father. Uh, we know that... Uh, we ourselves are not enough to bring meaning, fulfillment in life. Um, Father, you are, and you desire to bring us into that relationship with you. And Father, we see that. I mean, we ourselves, God, have gone through the exile where our sin has separated us from you. But Father, we also have experienced the amazing blessing of your son, Jesus. And we pray that you continue to reveal yourself through us, uh, through him, through this story, and the ways in which you continue to, to meet us. Lord, we love you, and it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.